everything to photography from beadwork to woodworking. KQAL FM on the campus of Winona State University presents Artbeat. Artbeat highlights the work and accomplishments of local artists from in and around Winona. Support for Artbeat is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Imagine a world that's been untouched by the events of the Ice Age, a place where almost every climate can exist in one place within walking distance. Well, that place exists and it's called the uh, Driftless Landscape. Uh, today, but what if you could experience it? You know, how would you feel? How would you represent it? What would your relationship with it be? Well, today on Artbeat, we are joined by a, a local artist, Maya Williams, who will tell us about her uh, show this Friday, Under, uh, Blooming Underground, which explains her relationship with the Driftless Landscape. And uh, joining us today on Artbeat, we have Maya Williams. Hi there. Hello, Maya. Thank you for doing this interview. Um, you uh, today on. Uh, you can just turn it up there, just like that little knob. Works. All right. Well, I want to thank you for doing this interview. First thing, uh, but let's just get right to it. What is Blooming Underground? Blooming Underground is a multimedia installation performance art shrine, which I know sounds like a lot. So uh, to break it down, basically what I'm doing is I'm doing a series of video installations and then a built-in installation in the room, and then I'm performing uh, a series of literary essays during that time. It's like a one-hour show at the Winona Arts Center at 7 p.m. this Friday. Well, I know reading that uh, it was called a multimedia art show. So what, what other forms of media besides essay are going to be part of that show? There's going to be video art, photography, a built-in sort of sculptural installation, and then obviously performing, like, there'll be some movement, um, some experimental theater, and some essay. Well, that definitely sounds interesting. Uh, and, and you say it's supposed to uh, um, honor your relationship with the Driftless Landscape. What is that relationship? Sure, I think that's a complicated relationship. I mean, on the one hand, the Driftless is gorgeous. It's beautiful as a landscape in and of itself. It's very varied. It has a certain sort of rugged, ancient quality. But on the other hand, that landscape has had a really um, violent history recently. I mean, when I talk about like my relationship with the Driftless landscape, I can't help but start to talk about the indigenous folks who took care and still take care of that landscape for millennia, and the recent newcomers, settler colonialists, who have done a lot of damage to that same landscape. So that landscape has changed and taken new forms um, because of the people who have lived here. So that's sort of the history of it that I'm trying to explore. So then, do you, so then, what would you say is your what? Do you, what do you want your audience to see when they're looking at your show? Do they do you want them to see the the driftless landscape itself or do you want to see like we need to connect with it and this is how I connect with it what what do you want the audience to see I mean in some ways I just want the audience to make connections between like their own body and their own personal stories and the world around them right and that world always has sort of a historical perspective to it as a question of for instance if you live in Winona and you're family is from here, you've been here, let's say, three generations. What does that mean to say that you are from Winona? What does it mean to say that you are from Minnesota? What does it mean to say that you're from a place that you've really only been here for three generations, and yet you can say 
you know, what is that relationship? Um, and I want people to also think about what is the future of that landscape? What does global warming do to that kind of landscape? What does it mean that we maybe have another 200 years left? Um, what kind of damage has we done? have we done and what kind of healing can we do in order to prevent that from happening? Those are sort of questions I'm exploring. Right. I noticed that in some of your previous work, you talk about defending, and I, forgive me if I misquote, but quote, the only world we know. And it, it got me thinking about this, because I obviously have not seen this uh, art show. Um, and you talk about it. Do you mean defending it? You clearly mean defending it as in it's being destroyed. How do we preserve it? But also the thing about this uh, driftless landscape, driftless gives the idea that it's always changing, you know, uh, and you could argue that we're capturing snapshots of something that is like a marvel to the world. And I, how, you know, how do we preserve it, you know? Right. I think you're definitely right that it's always changing. I never want to be able to sort of have this sense of sort of some sort of pre-colonial romantic view that like the world has always been a certain way for millions and millions of years. That's why I speak about the indigenous people, because the thing about indigeneity and what they did, especially with this landscape, is they shaped the landscape. You know, when settler colonialists came, they talked about how amazing it was. They basically walked into a place that looked like a garden for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles because it had been carefully maintained and curated. This isn't some sort of wildness that didn't have human intervention. It's a question is, is that human intervention allowing for sustainability or is it allowing for more destruction? You know, so when I think about the world, the only world we've ever known, I'm thinking about how do we create a world and continue to create a world that's actually able to sustain the humans and the rest of like life, non-human life, um, because we don't know how to do anything else, honestly. We don't know how to live anywhere else. Right, right. So it, it's kind of like that relationship between humans and nature. Um, and, and then you bring up the indigenous uh, peoples uh, uh, part of this. Now, you are a daughter of, of an indigenous uh, individual, and uh, I've noticed that influenced a lot of your past work. Combined with, uh, uh, as described by you, your blackness, uh, can I ask, how, how how did that influence this artwork that's coming up? Very much so. Like, it's pretty much centered around that work. I mean, I consider myself to be Afro-Indigenous, you know, um, from what is known as, like, southeastern, the south, southeastern um, U.S. Um, my family has land in what's now called South Carolina. Um, that's where we're from, the Carolinas, that, that sort of area. Right, right. It's a little bit warmer than here. Um and so wherever I've traveled, I've always been interested in who are the people who are taking care of the land right now? Who are the people who have, who have the knowledge and the power and the understanding to, to, to have kept their people alive for thousands and thousands of years and continue to do so? So with this work, I'm really going deep into that question. Like when I ask what's our relationship to the Driftless, I'm really asking what's our relationship to the maintenance and to the curation of this land and who knows how to do that best and how can we learn from them. And so I'm looking at, for instance, a lot of the work is around my grandmother, um, a woman who lived in, basically spent her whole life living, never went west of the Mississippi River, you right. know, um, but knew the land that she lived on incredibly well. 
um, you know, went out every morning to walk it and to pick plants. So those sort of practices I'm interested in, and I'm interested in how do we use those to be able to sustain life here in the Driftless. Like, what can I take from my Afro-Indigenous um, background as lessons to how we can continue to sustain ourselves as human beings? It's kind of like that. And you, and you mentioned your grandmother. I'm, I am seeing, like, you know, after, you know, reading up about you in some of your shows, like, it all is really connected. And I think that, personally, I think that's really cool. Um, and and I, br- I bring up your grandmother part because you talk about how she taught you a bunch of healing. Um, I, I, rituals isn't the right word, but uh, a bunch of techniques to essentially heal. And I noticed this show, you're talking about our relationship with the landscape, which, um, you know, is for better or for worse is changing and in some parts it's dying away other parts it's growing um and we kind of have to uh ask that question how do we heal it you know how do we and and i'm getting and uh, correct me if i'm wrong here could is it like you talk about your relationship with the landscape uh what are some of these healing techniques that you want to apply to it oh they're really basic there's nothing like super special i just like herbs and tea (laughs) Uh (laughs) no that's fair i you know i've it's it's delightful. Tea is amazing. I hot water and some weeds take you really far in life. I think um, walking the same land every day and knowing it really well, knowing the rhythms and patterns of that small piece of of space is really important. Um, you know, being willing. Last night I was up for the full moon eclipse at four o'clock in the morning, and I that's another habit I gained from my family, which is to always look up at the sky at least once a day. Oh, I didn't re- know there was an eclipse yesterday. I was out last night seeing that full moon myself, and it was breathtaking seeing, like, you could see the different elevations of the clouds that surrounded it, and it almost made it look like a dome. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was amazing. Around uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, it was blood red, oh. and the eclipse was happening. So, yeah, I I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, but that's okay. Well, it was I'm a, worth it. I, I would agree. I, <laughs> I remember for the last lunar eclipse I saw a couple of years ago, I stayed up till three in the morning and I had an exam the next day. Uh, I didn't do well on that exam, but I think it was. I think it's a fair trade-off. You know, it's a beautiful part of nature that we don't get to see every day. I'll be. We get to see it more common than the solar eclipse, but still, it's not something you really want to pass up. And then that begs to my next question: What do you think has separated? the modern human from the landscape, separated us from nature? Um, okay, I'm going to give the controversial answer. I think settler colonialism. Um, I think that there's a difference, you know, there's a difference in relationship with the land if you come to conquer it versus if you come to be um, in relationship with it, you know? Um, and I'm not, please do not get me wrong. Again, I am not romanticizing indigenous cultures or X, Y, and Z or so on and so forth. There are various ways of living in the world. Right, right. But there is a difference between coming to a land out of curiosity and coming to a land out of a need to um, possess, to dominate, to conquer, to make conquest. I mean, it's called the conquista for a reason, right? Like, there, there just is. And, and that is not just a relationship that you have with the people who live there. It's a relationship you have with the land itself. And I think that culture of how, what relationship we have with the resources, the natural resources, as we call them, um, influences everything from the fact that we decided that dinosaur juice was how we were going to run the world, not always the best decision, um, to the ways that we sort of, you know, even know how to walk on land 
you know, and how we and what we see and what we don't and what we think of as uh, sustainable and what we think of as what we should take now, whether or not we're thinking in long term or we're thinking in short term, whether or not we're thinking in terms of capitalism, which no offense, capitalism can work in certain respects, but making the global system in which you always have to get more, 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 you have to increase every year on a finite planet just isn't going to work after a certain time. You're going to, these, these, it's just mathematically, logically impossible to work. And there's a reason, and we, ha, and without having some um, uh, feedback, some, some, uh, some way to make balance between what we take and what we give, then our relationship with the earth and with the planet and with nature is going to be skewed, you know. It is interesting uh, how you note that. Uh, you know, I see it in your answers and how you're how you're talking. There is a huge sense of balance, and I notice that you have a tendency to. You're not applic- you're not applying moral to anything that you're saying, which I which is I find very interesting. It's not that one is good, one is bad. It's they're both existing, and they both they both can have their goods, their problems, and we kind of just have to have we we kind of have to balance. When are we going to do which? I, I find that really really interesting. Um, and I, I did look in more into you as an individual, and I did find it interesting. You identify as queer, correct? And you're also a Muslim. Very much so. So a lot of questions kind of stem from that. Uh, how did your uh, queerness and Islamic faith, did that influence this at all, or did it have any impact? The joke is, and it's a joke, y'all, um, I always say I'm trying to be the worst Muslim ever. <laughs> but really, it's probably it goes back to the idea of balance. I um, converted to Islam when I was living in the Middle East. I was living in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And I converted not because I had some great you know, epiphany of whatever. It was because I was living in a Middle Eastern country. I was living in Egypt. I had been living there for, at that point, almost seven years. I had fasted for Ramadan. I prayed the um, prayer. I, I lived next to the mosque, so I listened to the call to prayer five times a day. I was raising my daughter in a Muslim country. I was basically in every way cult- and cultured as Muslim for years and years and years. I couldn't have told you the last time I'd been to a church. Um, you know. And so I finally went, oh, it isn't a question of do I convert to Islam. It's a question of I'm already practicing as a Muslim. I might as well just admit it, you know? Um, it's more like a, a state of honesty than it's a state of like epiphany. Um, and I remember at that point, a friend of mine who was also Muslim and they were queer as well. And they were like talking about those challenges they were having being Muslim and queer. And I thought, well, yeah, I can see that. But to be honest, when it comes to Islam, I would like to be inside of that conversation talking about Islam than be outside of Islam talking about Islam. You know what I mean? I feel right. like if I'm going to be critical of of the many abuses and exaggerations that have happened within the Islamic world, then I should be inside of it having to take the consequences of actually making those kind of declarations. That well, is, that's an interesting uh, perspective, the idea that you don't practice it based on a metaphysical un, uh, acceptance, but more as a your environment and that you already take part in it, therefore you uh, claim to be part of it. And I can see, again, everything you say ties together. I, I find it amazing because you can tie this back to your relationship with your environment. But um, now that you're outside of the Islamic world, would you still say you would uh, 
uh, practice uh, the Islamic faith? Or would you also say that it still impacts your daily life, including a relationship with the driftless landscape? Very much so. I mean, I thought about that too. I thought about well, what happens when I've left. When I've, but what happened was I ended up moving um, for a while to Berlin. And when I moved to Berlin, Germany, I found myself moving to the Arab Muslim neighborhoods in Berlin because I could speak Arabic. You know what I mean? Because I could still right, right. move better, easier in those worlds, and I could. Li- I didn't speak any German at the time. So, and then I found when I came here, I started to make relationships with people who were also like Muslim or Middle Eastern or Arab or um, at that point Ethiopian and Somali, because again, that's those are the cultures that I felt more comfortable with. You know, so at this point, I consider myself to be part of the Muslim diaspora as anyone else is who lives in the West and still practices. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I pra- I'm a really bad Muslim. I didn't fast for Ramadan last this year. Um, I, I just didn't eat pork. So, I mean, it is, uh, there is a point to that that leads to another question. America, as we all know, is the melting pot of the world. You know, you have several different cultures, religions, and beliefs coming here. Um, and we see that in, in the Midwest of a huge amount. It was, you know, even me coming here, it was, you know, I saw a bunch of diverse individuals with many different backgrounds. Um, and that can actually, you can, it can actually impact people's uh, perception of your show and, you know, what you're trying to portray. Like, this is my relationship to the land and I would like you all to have a relationship with it as well. Um, but do you think that these different perspectives that people have could cause a barrier from them accepting the driftless landscape as it is or trying to make a relationship with it. Do you mean because people come from very different like backgrounds that they would have a different... Everyone has a relationship to the driftless if you live here. You have to. You walk on it. Now, what that relationship is, what what you call that, how mm-hmm. you, what it is, is the question on the table. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like I, I mean, whether or not... Even if I said, I can't stand this place, it's horrible, X, Y, and Z, that's still a relationship with the land. It's just a negative one. (laughs) Right, right. I hate the river. You know, that would still be a relationship with it. So my question isn't even what kind of relationship should you have. It's what kind of relationship do you have? And can you name it? And can you accept that every place you live, every land you walk on, you're making relationship? So then maybe you can be conscious about what that relationship is and what you want it to be. That is a beautiful thing to think about. Like, uh, that when I was reading this, that was not the idea I had. But you saying that it is something that I'm sure our listeners, it, it gets them thinking, what is my relationship to the place I'm a part of? What is my relationship from places I've left or places I'm going to? That is amazing. And and, and your art show, it makes it kind of feel like your art show just, it has a focus on this area because this is just where it is. But it could apply anywhere. Yes. And it would change depending on where it is, which it's astounding. It's amazing to think about. Um, beyond that, there were several questions prompted by your, um, by the, uh, excuse me, by your show, including, I have them right here, uh, how do we exist in the face of uncertainty, conflict, trauma, and death? And I'll ask you, what, what would you say your response is? Or do you have a response? Are these just open-ended questions that you're trying to I'll run through the rest of them just so in case it might be open-ended. Uh, how do we find meaning in, uh, in, the, in crisis? How do we rest and celebrate? How do we talk to our ancestors and to our children? These are very deep questions, and I'm wondering, how does that tie into the relationship of the land? And what is your response to them? 
Well, for one thing, I think I was reflecting, I still am reflecting, on COVID for the past two and a half years, which is crisis and trauma and death. It's a little bit of a downer, I know, but the past two and a half years have been a little bit of a downer. Um, and so I was wondering, how do we live here on this land and go through crisis and go through trauma? What does it look like? Like, what? not even what should we do, just what have we done? What has it looked like? And has it been effective or ineffective? You know, has it been sustaining and nurturing or has it been divisive and separating? And going forward, because here's the honest truth, sooner or later, the crises of the global crises in the world um, are going to affect and end up affecting this small town in this, you know, driftless landscape, whether it's climate change, whether it's refugee crises, whether it's climate change, refugee crises. And so how are we going to deal with those crises and those traumas? Do we have a method and a um, sense of history and a sense of tradition that shows us how what we do in the face of crises? Are we open and welcoming? Do we close our doors to strangers? Do we try to just get to high ground? Are we down on the ground doing mutual aid? What is it that we do as a people? I'm not saying what you should do. Again, I'm just saying what is it that we have done and what, what will we do in the future? And will it be sustainable for humanity here, sustainable for life here, or will it be destructive towards it? Yeah, it really gets me thinking. Um, you know, I see... Uh, the Winona area for what it is as of now. Summers are beautiful. The cold is horrible. Um, but, you know, there's still part of it that I enjoy. You know, I'd rather have it than not. But the thing is, uh, you know, obviously, when you and I are long gone and everyone listening here is long gone, that will change. And what will the relationship of the people there be with the, with the landscape if it becomes desert or if it becomes forest? Um, you know, what what will it be then? And, and I, I get that's not the point of your uh, of your art piece, but it is something that had a question brewing in my head. You know, what was it before? What was it after? And how would people respond to that? And, and it's almost like your art show is kind of shedding light on something that we all conceptualize, but we don't address. We oftentimes don't make it conscious, I think. I think we also have these sort of almost subconscious ideas about like, oh yeah, of course, X, Y, and Z. And then when you start to talk to people, you realize you really do have very different ideas about what the future looks like. You have very different ideas about what survival looks like, what a good life looks like in 100 years, what you want for your grandchildren, what their lives to look like. So maybe in some ways, I'm just trying to bring those a little bit to the surface and say, hey, what are we doing as a people? Right, on top of that, also, how do we, how do we um, address our environment? Yes. Because, you know, some people go out there and they'll see the streets, they'll see the buildings, and they're like, I'm just in Winona. But you see it, and you seem to see, you know, this is a beautiful environment that has remained safe from this uh, event that affected the entire world. Um, you know, I see Winona, and I see this place is not where I'm from, I see the bluffs and I think, wow, these are amazing for stargazing, <laughs> but I don't really, uh, I don't really take into thought how do I, f how do I fit into my environment? Mm. It's more of my environment exists separate from me, and it doesn't. It it really doesn't. I'm 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 part of the environment to which I'm I'm a, to which I'm inside, and I, I and the thing is, you know, everyone's probably thinking, yeah, no, yeah, duh. 
well, yeah, but we don't think that, you know? We don't walk around as if that's a conscious thought a lot of the time. Not everybody. But when you think about it, as you just got me, as you got me to do now during the course of this interview, it really gets you to come up with some amazing ideas. Uh, I, forgive me, it's just, you got me thinking quite a bit and I haven't even seen the show yet. Uh, where can they see this show, by the way? It's at the Winona Arts Center um, on Friday, November 11th. Uh, it starts, the cafe opens at 6 p.m., so come in and get some snacks. 7 p.m. begins the actual, like, we'll open the gallery in the performance area. It's about an hour-ish long. It's free. Come and have a good time. There, there will be lights. Well, before I uh, end this interview, I'd like to ask, is there anything you'd like to say to our audience? Winona is a lovely place. It's also about to get very, very cold. That's Indeed. all I have to say. Yeah, you see our forecast. It's like thunderstorms the next few days, which yeah. I enjoy. But I it's like I stopped by Quick Trip yesterday. There was an umbrella on sale. I didn't buy it. And then I see the forecast. I'm like, oh, well, that was a bad decision. I have an umbrella in my bag. My relationship to the environment <laughs> is I will get wet. Um, <laughs> well, I'd like to thank you for uh, joining us for this uh, event. Thank you. And you know what? I wish you the best in your show. Thank you. So, uh, if you'd like to see more of her work, uh, Maya's work, you can find her at... Oh, I'm sorry. What? What? Where can they find more of your work? Oh, sure. Um, you can find me at um, mayawilliams.tumblr.com or, you know, find me on the Facebooks, M-A-I apostrophe A, Williams. Well, thank you for being here, Maya. Thank you so much. Heartbeat is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. Visit us on the web at kqal.org.